Well, good morning, I think. Hello, is that me? Good, all right. Um, if you look in your program this morning, it says that Pastor Skeet is preaching, but you also noticed on the announcements there it said that uh, he said he likes to see all those kids running around. Apparently some of them sneezed on him or something this week, and he is at home deathly ill in bed, apparently. And uh, I have four teenagers at my house, and one of the things that we say all the time is, Nothing good ever happens after midnight. Well, when you're in ministry, if you answer your phone after 6 o'clock in the evening on a Saturday, nothing good ever happens there either. So I got the call last night about 6.30 from Skeet saying that he was not going to make it this morning. So bear with me, if you will, this morning. Um, Has anybody noticed that a lot of people these days seem to be offended? Well, I'm going to take my chance right here, because I don't get to stand up in front of everybody all the time and vent, so I'm going to vent about what offends me. <laughs> M&Ms. You know, when they invented M&Ms, they came in plain and... But now you can get them with pretzels and peanut butter and Rice Krispies and all kinds of other stuff inside, right? It's not right. There's the, I don't know what those are, but they're not M&Ms. There may be WWs if you turn them upside down. But people have this way of being offended by all kinds of stuff these days, and and a lot of it comes, uh, a lot of offense comes because the world has different views from what Scripture has. And and as people people have lived through the centuries, uh, people have tried to take God's plan and, and mold it into their own ideas of how things ought to work. So we've been involved in this series called Upstream, Living Against the Current, and and it's a great time to pause and talk about the things that, that we as Christ followers will be forced to swim against in this world if we're going to truly follow him. In our life group a couple weeks ago, somebody mentioned that the, we talked about this kind of topic, and somebody mentioned the fact that that you know, the current is always flowing. And and all it takes to get caught up in the current is to stop swimming against it. If you're not swimming against the current, you're going with the current. And even at that, sometimes it's, it's really tough because you have to swim awful hard to stay against the current. So this morning, our topic for today is one of those things that I think uh, is a clear example of where we as Christ followers need to take a stand against the cultural current, and that is in the arena of marriage. So our topic for this morning is is marriage, and I want to start out, we're going to skip around uh, several places in Scripture this morning and land on some familiar marriage Scriptures, but first I want to turn to Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 4 and just give you the beginning of that verse, and it says this, Let marriage be held in high honor among all. So the writer of Hebrews says that, that we are supposed to hold marriage up as something as something special. It's to be held in high honor. It's to be something that is above and outside of the ordinary. That's what God's vision of marriage is. But today, I truly believe that marriage is under assault in this country and throughout the world. And we can easily point to a lot of things that are in the news. You know, we have this... Uh, 
idea of gay marriage, which, by the way, according to Scripture, that really can't exist, and we'll get back to that a little bit more in a minute here. We have, we have such a thing called no-fault divorce, where it just is easy to split from people because it's really nobody's fault. We just decide we're not going to be married anymore, contrary to Scripture. We have premarital cohabitation, also contrary to Scripture. There's such a thing as open marriages these days, where we're not really committed monogamously to each other. And the incredibly, to me, incredibly shocking story that's been in the news lately about, about this website called Ashley Madison, where, where people can go online and figure out how to better cheat on their spouse. And the fact that that exists is one thing. The fact that there are millions of people that have subscribed to the Ashley Madison website is truly amazing to me. And marriage is no longer held in high honor in this country, throughout the world. But marriage is hugely important, and marriage is something that is sacred to God. As a matter of fact, this is so important that that when Jesus talks to his followers about what God's relationship to the church is like, he equates it to marriage, to the bride and bridegroom. This is something that is hugely important to God and that we should not take lightly. You know, a number of years ago, some movies came out, the Shrek movies. Anybody seen the Shrek movies, right? Shrek movies came out, and and my kids apparently were exposed to some things in the Shrek movies that they'd never heard before, Shrek songs, right? Now, being an oldie myself, I get in my truck and I listen to oldies music, and And when I listen to the oldies radio station, sometimes my kids are riding along with me. It struck me a couple times they would say as a song came on the radio, hey, that's a Shrek song. And I would have to correct them, no, that's not a Shrek song. That's a song that existed long before Mike Myers and Shrek ever, you know, dreamed of existing. But it's kind of an example to me of how the world takes one thing and shapes it into something else. See, Shrek, with all its creativity and its kid-centeredness and its, you know, a little bit of, of more grown-up humor in there to rope in the adults, too, it's, it's transformed a handful of great oldies tunes into a handful of, of great ogre, talking donkey, swashbuckling, Spanish-accented cat tunes. And, and I think if we look at this, and from, from a... As I say, if we look at this from a biblical perspective, there is no such thing as that from a biblical perspective. If we take this and we look at, at marriage from a biblical perspective and what the world has taken and done to marriage, it's a lot the same thing. They've taken this concept of marriage and they've twisted it into something that it is not, and it's not God's plan as to how things are working today. See, the Bible gives us a view of marriage that society today is transforming into something quite different and in a lot of ways, at least to God, unrecognizable. And it's a little, it's, you know, it's kind of uh, subtle in, in some ways and very obvious in others because if you go to a wedding today, even with people who are not striving to follow the biblical model of marriage or have, uh, you know, even know the Lord, a lot of the things look the same as a, as a wedding of two incredible, devoted Christ followers look. The dress is still white. The guy is still in the tux. The cake is still the same. And a lot of the elements are exactly the same. 
but the world and society has taken and transformed what God has created and turned it into something that's completely different. Society is not trying to claim God's idea. They are trying to claim God's idea and plan as their own. Society is trying to remake God's plan for God's people. And we need to swim upstream against this trend. See, it gets down to this, that God is the author and originator of marriage. And when you are the author and the originator of something, you get some privilege. See, he gets to define what marriage is because it was his idea. He gets to determine what it is and what it isn't. And today, people are trying to pass some other stuff off as marriage. But since God is the author of marriage, and he gets to define it, what these other folks are selling just really isn't it. God designed marriage. God's designed marriage is a form of worship. Worship back to him. God's designed marriage honors him and both the husband and the wife who are in it. Before we dive heavily into scripture this morning, I want to share two pictures with you that I know from the first service will stick in your head for later. So let me have the first picture, if we could, back there. Yeah, Shrek was good. This is better. Yeah. If you're not familiar, this is the movie A Christmas Story. And if you haven't seen it, I don't know what to tell you. From Thanksgiving through somewhere in the middle of January, it is on every hour of every day on about nine different TV stations, so you can watch it at any time. But it is a phenomenal movie. It's a story of little Ralphie. And this is his friend, Flick, who has taken a dare. Actually, I think it's a double dog dare. And he has stuck his tongue to a frozen flagpole. Now that image is in your head, let's move on to the next one. This right here is a millstone. Actually, it's two millstones. Because without two millstones, it doesn't do you any good to have one millstone. Because millstones work in tandem with each other. You need first a runner stone on the top, and you also need the stone that's on the bottom. You need the base stone underneath it. And we're going to talk a little bit more about the flagpole and tongue and the millstones in a minute. But I want to have you have those pictures in your head because they will stick with you. And I want them to stick with you today because, believe it or not, I'm going to relate those back to the God's biblical plan for marriage. Now I got your attention, don't I? But let's go back to where this whole thing all starts in Scripture. If you have your Bible with you this morning, please flip with me, if you would, to Genesis chapter 2. The Bible verses will also be up on the screen this morning for you. But we're going to go to Genesis chapter 2, beginning at verse 1, and the scripture goes something like this. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all of the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all of his work that he had done. And so God blessed the seventh day, and he made it holy, because on God, because on it God rested from all his work and all he had done in creation. Now Genesis 2 is an interesting passage of Scripture because Genesis 2 sort of finishes the story of Genesis 1 in these first three verses. And then it goes on, and it, it goes back, and it talks about the creation story from Genesis 1 with a little more detail on a couple parts. 
But what I want you to gather from these three verses is this. The word finished appears twice in three verses. The word done appears three times in these three verses. So I want you to get this picture when when God is laying down his biblical account of creation and he gets to the end of this sixth day of creation, which is what he's talking about here. It says that his work was complete. It was finished, finished, done, done, done at this point in time. And when God has something that's finished, finished, and done, 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 guess what? It doesn't need anything added to it. It doesn't need to be tweaked in any way. It is exactly how it should be. So when we talk about God's creation, it is exactly how he wanted it to be when he had finished the sixth day. And as a part of his creation on the sixth day, there was also the concept of marriage. So when we talk about marriage, and God is the author and designer of marriage, we need to understand this, that the same thing that was true for Adam and Eve at the end of day six is true for us today, that God's design for marriage was fine exactly the way he made it, and we don't need to add to it, we don't need to tweak it, we don't need to do anything with it except for follow it. But let's look a little more at the detail of the story. Go to verse 18 in Genesis chapter 2. We'll pick up the story there. It says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them uh, to man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to all the livestock and to all the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. It's an interesting little concept here, this fit for him piece. Because God had created everything in creation and it was all good. But when he got to Adam, there was a piece that was still missing. See, that piece, that, that, that phrase, fit for him, means this. It means that Adam needed a counterpart. He needed a millstone. He was one stone missing the other. See, because in the millstone world, there are bed stones that lay on the ground, and then there are runner stones that go across the top. And if those two things don't exist together, you cannot grind wheat as hard as you try. And also, if you have two runner stones, you cannot grind wheat, no matter how hard you try. And if all you have is two bed stones, you cannot grind wheat as hard as you try. You get the picture here? There is a design, and it takes two different things to make that design work. And they're counterparts to one another. And the interesting thing about millstones is that as you work with millstones over years and years and years, they actually get better at what they do. And that is exactly what God's design for marriage is. It is for a man and a woman to be counterparts to one another, and as they work together over years and struggles and grinding against one another, that they get to be better at what they do. And that is bringing glory to God. Go to verse 21 with me. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took out one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord had taken from the man, 
he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, At last, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall, come, uh, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So just as you had the picture of the millstones, and I want you to realize that God's design is that, that these two counterparts work together. I want you also to realize that God's design is that people be joined together, husband and wife, and when they are, they become one flesh in God's eyes. And that's where the picture of the flagpole and flick comes in. I realize we're in Houston, and you can stick your tongue on a flagpole any day here, and nothing's going to happen. But if you're in the frozen tundra of the great white north, and you stick your tongue to a flagpole in the middle of winter, you are going to be stuck there for a while until you decide that it's time to move on, and when you do, you are going to lose part of your tongue to the flagpole. And if you've seen the movie, the next scene after Flick being stuck to the flagpole is Flick sitting in class with a huge bandage on the end of his tongue, sitting trying to get through math class. Because that's what happens. When we become one flesh, it's like sticking our tongue to a flagpole, and if you pull those two things apart, there is going to be something left behind. There is going to be damage done. There is going to be a price to be paid for that. In marriage, two become one flesh, and they cannot be separated without damage. God holds marriage in such high value that he wants it to be an incredible lifetime commitment. As a matter of fact, this relationship is like no other in our lives or in all of creation. Flip back with me a little bit. We're going to back up, and you only get one option backing up from Genesis chapter 2. So go back to Genesis chapter 1. If you're flipping for a long time, you've done something incorrect because it's right there. Genesis chapter 1, we're going to begin at verse 24. And we'll read this. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Remember that phrase, and God saw that it was good. And God said, Let us make a man in our image after our likeness and let him have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all of the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And if you flip, skip down to verse 31, it says this, and God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. So understand this. God had created in the first six days of creation, the heavens, the earth, the water, the sea creatures, the animals, the critters of all kinds, things that fly, things that swim, things that creep, things that slither. Everything had been created. All the plants, all the animals, everything. He had created everything until he got to man. And before he got to man, at the end of each day, he said, it is good, 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 until he created man and woman. And once he had created man and woman, he said, it is very good. And I think the very good waited until actually after he had created woman. Because until, without this relationship that God had established between Adam and Eve, 
All of creation, although it was good and although it was perfect, was somehow incomplete. Because it's marriage that made all of creation very good. Because it completed God's creation. You know, Jesus showed us just how important marriage was as well in the New Testament. Flip over to the New Testament, to the first book of the New Testament, book of Matthew, and turn to chapter 19, and we're going to begin at verse 4 in Matthew chapter 19. In Matthew 19, we have Jesus talking, and he says this, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Direct quote from Genesis, right? And so they were no longer two, but one flesh. And then Jesus adds this, What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. You know, I talked about I'm offended by M&Ms. I think God's offended by an awful lot that happens these days. And I think one of the things that offends him most is what we have done with his institution of marriage. See, because society tells us today that it's, it's okay to transform God's design and fit it into a new set of norms that is all about how we feel about things. And because of that, marriage over the years has morphed into something about being from in morphed into something that instead of being about commitment based has become about being fulfillment based and and we have allowed men to step into the middle of marriages men and women and separate people from one another spouses from one another even though Jesus said what God has joined together let no man separate and I think a lot of it just goes back to what our view of marriage is and what's, what's taught and what's uh, put out in society today is that, that marriage is, is this proposition between two people where it's a 50-50 deal. And, you know, I have to do my 50% and my wife's going to do her 50% and together that's going to make 100%. And after all, 100% is pretty good, but that's wrong. The Bible doesn't say that marriage is a 50-50 proposition. Because in a 50-50 proposition, one party gives less, then the other party can take offense. If one party takes more, then they've broken the contract. And once the contract's broken, it's permission for an out. You know, a lot of people enter marriage these days with the idea that marriage is a 50-50 proposition and they understand that this is some kind of contract between husband and wife. And when they do, for some reason, they come to the idea that if it doesn't work out, that divorce may be an option someday. And once divorce is an option, divorce many times becomes an inevitability. And that is not God's design. God's design is rather that instead of marriage being a 50-50 proposition based on fulfillment, that it's a 100%, 100% commitment to your spouse. And not only is it a 100% commitment to your spouse, but that commitment is based on a relationship with God and knowing that God is the one who has put this all together in the first place. We finished a few weeks ago uh, a series on King David, the great patriarch of the Jewish people. 
And one of the things, although David had many, many problems, and he was also very successful in a lot of areas, David understood how sin worked, mostly because in sometimes he was really good at it. But whenever David sinned and whenever David had to ask forgiveness, he knew that the, the person or the being that needed to forgive him the most was not a human being, but there was God. And David often comes and says, God, I have sinned against you, before he even talks about asking forgiveness from the people around him. Because when we get married, we make a commitment not only to each other as spouses, but we make commitment before God. And I've always been struck by the fact that people who, who do not know God are not trying to be Christ followers, who may never darken the doors of a church, always want to get married in one, or frequently want to get married in one. And they want the service to look an awful lot like uh, uh, the religious service that we would do for people, two people who are faithful Christ followers and who want to commit their lives to Christ. But in order for a marriage to prosper... Both people need to be moving towards God, and they need to be committed 100% to each other and 100% to being the spouse that God has designed them to be. I asked a lot of you coming in here this morning who, you know, have been in church for a long time, what's the kind of quintessential scripture on marriage? A lot of you would say, we need to go to Ephesians 5 this morning. Because Ephesians 5 is in, like, most wedding ceremonies. And something we talk about. So let's go to Ephesians 5 for a minute. But a lot of people like to skip down in Ephesians 5 when they talk about weddings and spouses and things to verse 21. We're not going to start there. We're going to start at the beginning of the chapter instead. So Ephesians 5, verses 1 through 3 says this. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and impurity and covetousness must not be named among you, as is proper among the saints. It's interesting, as especially as I look at verse 3 there, that Paul equates a number of things together here. My job at our house many evenings to help out with eighth grade math, which is sort of algebra these days, and now I know about equations and things on both sides. And By the way, it's straight from Satan when we added letters to math. I'm just saying that. Noah should have swatted the two mosquitoes, and somebody should have stood up long ago and said, this is wrong, these letters. But the biggest issue we have in in honoring our spouses today, is, is this whole thing of what Paul talks about here. There's, there's this issue of sexual immorality, and most people would say that, that is, that's wrong. And, and most people would say that, that impurity is wrong. But I want you to look at the other thing he ties to those two phrases. He says there's sexual immor- immorality, there's impurity, and there's covetousness. Or to simplify that a little bit, there's selfishness. And you know, we as people are plain selfish. We want what we want when we want it because we want it. And, and when the Bible talks about, about these things, our selfishness is generally what gets us in trouble in the marriage relationship. 
Because the Bible says that in all of our relationships, we should always be looking out for others and considering them more important than ourselves. And that applies most especially to the person that God has given us as our spouse. And Paul warns us more about this a little further down in Ephesians 5. Look at verse 6 and follow with me there. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to God. This passage says that that we are to be children of light because we have the Lord. And it also says, though, at the beginning in verse 6, let no one be deceived with empty words. And I think if you look, especially, you know, it's easy right now. We're in this goofy political climate where there's so many people running for president from all over the joint. And there is a lot of empty, deceitful words out there. There's a lot of people who will tell you their opinions on things rather than, thus saith the Lord. And when we get away from what God's biblical plan is for our lives and God's biblical plan for marriages, and we start listening to people who are great psychologists, psychiatrists, you know, social worker people, and all those other things, not that there's anything wrong with any of those things. But they're empty words compared to the word that God has to speak to us. And because of those things, we wind up in disobedience. And it doesn't just apply to marriage. It applies to a whole lot of different areas of our lives. When we listen to what society tells us is the normative thing to do, a lot of times it's empty words that are contrary to Scripture. And when we do that, we find ourselves in real trouble. But we like to do that a lot of times because we're basically selfish. And because we're selfish, we're easily deceived by things that we think are going to make us happy rather than things that are pleasing to God. So in verse 10, it says, though, that we are to try and discern what is pleasing to the Lord. When we try and discern what is pleasing to the Lord, it is frequently going to be contrary to what those deceitful, empty words say or even to what our selfish attitudes tell us that we should be doing. This idea of selfishness, I think, is behind a lot of what we see in the divorce rates that are in our country these days. And I know in a crowd this size, there are people who are sitting here that have been through divorce. And divorce in God's economy is wrong. But divorce in God's economy is also something that's forgivable because we have a Savior who died for all of our sins and all of our iniquities, and he can forgive us. And a lot of times, one of the partners in this whole process didn't even want this to happen. One of the spouses was opposed So I don't mean to sit here today and say that if divorce has been a part of your family, 
that there is something necessarily wrong with you. I want to say that as, like with many other things, in this upstream idea, a lot of times we get caught up more in what the world tells us we should do as opposed to what God tells us we should do. And I've heard people say before, I think God really wants me to be happy. Why wouldn't God want me to be happy? That's not what verse 10 of Ephesians 5 says, folks. It says that we're not supposed to try and be happy. What does it say? We're supposed to try and discern what is pleasing to the Lord. You know, there's a prophet in the Old Testament, Jeremiah. And Jeremiah tried really hard through his whole ministry and his whole life to try and do what was pleasing to the Lord. And when he did that, he spent a lot of time living in the bottom of a well. He spent some more time with an ox yoke around his neck. And he had time after time where he delivered to the people of Israel messages that they didn't want to hear. But instead of trying to do what made him feel good and what he thought society wanted him to do, Jeremiah stood up and he said, I'm going to try and discern what is pleasing to the Lord and I'm going to carry his message forward to his people. And I think as with anything else in our lives, one of the things that we should be doing every time we're together here and opening God's word here in, in this service is we're saying, you know, we all have a past, we all have things that have been a part of us before and the important thing is not what has happened in our past. The important thing is where we go from this point forward. And this is a stake in the ground right here, and from this point we move forward. And we should always be trying, striving to discern what is pleasing to God. So let's get finally to that passage of Scripture that's in most people's weddings and that we always think about as the Scripture that talks about marriage. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 5, beginning at verse 21, and see what it has to say for us this morning. Ephesians 21, or 5.21 says this, Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Get this? Both partners in this marriage proposition committed to each other. Verse 22, wives, submit to your husband as to the Lord. That's commitment. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and, his, uh, is, and is himself its Savior. And now the church submits to Christ, so also wives ought to submit everything to their husbands. John Hattenberger several weeks ago did another pass, did another uh, sermon on, on marriage where he covered this submission and leadership of the husband very, very well. And I would, uh, for time's sake this morning, ask you to go back if you weren't here for that and listen to that sermon up online if you would. Verse 25 says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And he gave himself up for her. Again, commitment. Uh, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish, in the same way husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. Again, commitment. If in marriage all we are about is fulfillment instead of commitment, we are never going to find what pleases God. Finally, let's go back to where we started this morning, into the book of Hebrews. Flip over in your Bible to Hebrews chapter 13, if you would, and we're going to pick up at verse 4. 
The writer of Hebrews says this, let the marriage let marriage be held in high honor among all and let marriage marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexual sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have for he has said I will never leave you or forsake you. So we will uh, so we can confidently say the Lord is my helper I will not fear. What can man do to me? And you know what? Concentrate with me on that last phrase, if you would. Verse uh, verse 6. The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? I think in the society we live in today, as believers, as followers of Jesus Christ, man is trying to do a lot of things to us today. And because man is trying to do a lot of things for, to us today, we tend to be fearful many times. But this verse clearly says, the Lord is my helper. I don't need to fear anything. And I need to stand with what God says and not what society says is the norm. You know, when we talk about holding marriage in honor, there's a couple things I want us to think about as we wrap up today. When we hold marriage in honor, we're holding God in honor. Because God is the creator and author of marriage. So therefore, when we honor our spouse, we honor God. When we talk about holding marriage in honor, we talk about holding our spouse in honor. When we talk about holding marriage in honor, we need to realize that this is going to be swimming against the current of society today. When we hold marriage in honor, it's not being deceived by the empty words of the sons of disobedience who say that marriage is just some kind of uh, social union of two people. Marriage is a monogamous lifetime relationship between a man and a woman. When we hold marriage in honor... It's striving every day to discern what God's will is for ourselves and for our spouse. And it's clinging to this. But we can, be con- but we can confidently say, the Lord is my uh, helper. I will not fear what man can do to me. And I will not fear the direction that man wants to take me. I'm going to follow Jesus. God's really clear on marriage. It's important to him. He's the author of it. He's the designer of it. It speaks to his, our relationship with him and to his relationship with the church. And it's something that we should not take lightly. And it's something that we should strive to honor every day. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much this morning that we can open your word and we can see that you truly, Lord, have a design for us of marriage that is honoring to you, Lord, that is designed by you and is something, Lord, that we need to take very, very seriously. I pray, Father God, this morning for those that are in strong marriages that you would continue to strengthen them and not let the evil one get a foothold in any way into those relationships. I pray, Lord, for those this morning who may be struggling in their relationships, that they would recommit themselves to you this morning and to their spouses. 
And I pray this morning, Lord, for those who uh, have been more concerned with their own fulfillment than with their commitment to you in the past and their commitment to their spouse in the past. And I pray, Lord, that this would be the day that from they say from this point forward, I will strive to please God. I will strive to live in a marriage that is in line with what God's design for marriage is to be. Father God, I pray that you would strengthen us this morning. Help us to know, Lord, that there are those out in front of us that will try and deceive us. And I pray, Lord God, that you would help us to say, what what man throws at me, I am not going to be swayed by. But I am going to be committed to God as a follower of his. And I pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.